Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Well, you think with Billy's job, he'd know better knowing that I have the last word. <laughs> Good to be with you again, for sure. Uh, we appreciate being here for many reasons. Uh, in Kirkland Lake, where we live, the school buses were canceled on, I think, Tuesday because the weather was so cold. They don't run them, I guess, when it's less than uh, below minus 30 Celsius. They don't run the school buses. And probably Friday, they will be shut down again. So, oh, I know. We we walk to school uphill both ways. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, sandals. <laughs> but that's life. But uh, some of these bus routes, of course, if they broke down, they'd be in be in trouble. Uh, I, I already spoken at a prayer meeting today, uh, seven o'clock. Uh, in Ireland. So I spoke at two in the afternoon and uh, spoke in Ireland. It was interesting. Uh, Mary had Kathy at, at her house and uh, they work on the, the east side, of course, around Dublin, and they work with the mainly with travelers, what we would call gypsies in old days. You can't probably use that term anymore, but they would be uh, people from Eastern Europe. As they, they work uh, two hours to the the west of them in Newcastle West, uh, Colin and Natalie Burnett are there. And interestingly enough, uh, the majority in their assembly are from Poland. Uh, it's Polish people that got uh, saved, and there are some Irish there. Uh, where I spoke today is a, a half hour south of them. It's a town called Newtown, Chandron, Garnet, and Gwen Cooney uh, from northern Ontario are there. And it's nearly all Ukrainians. Uh, and there they have three Ukrainian families, uh, 12 young people, and Garnet told me they're getting another Ukrainian family next next week. Uh, so there might be one Irish lady. Uh, there's a Zambian lady, a nurse, uh, in that meeting as well. And then, of course, two Canadians. And so it's it's quite a, not a mixture, uh, really, but uh, it's overwhelmingly Ukrainian. Uh, it's interesting, in the south of Ireland, uh, over in Dublin, is there is a uh, Frank and Grace Callahan, where the first uh, Irish-born commended workers in about 50 years, and those uh, most of those assemblies don't even have Irish elders. Uh, where David and Beth Wilson uh, served down in Waterford, they actually had Irish elders, and then they've moved down to Kilkenny, further south, and. Uh, Got a work going down uh, there, actually reaching some Irish people. It's hard to reach Irish men in particular. Uh, of course, like many places in the world, the Catholic Church uh, held sway for many years, but now, of course, has lost that. Uh, the bishop, maybe 20 years ago, who was the, the head of the Catholic Church in the south of Ireland, was caught siphoning off church funds to support a family of his in Boston, Massachusetts. And so that really uh, put a jaundiced view on the Catholic uh, Church. But it's interesting how these Eastern Europeans are being uh, reached as they, they move across. The Lord, Lord is able. And so it's uh, interesting to uh, spend time with these Ukrainians today. So we're going to try and work through Second Timothy. And the outline, uh, 
just gives you an idea of where uh, we're going. And uh, tonight we'll just look at some thoughts in chapter one. I want to just give you a time frame for the New Testament that help us to appreciate where Paul is and what he's doing. Uh, there's no real consensus, but in my view, the Lord Jesus was born in four. B.C. Uh, Caesar Augustus gave the decree in 6 B.C., and so uh, he died uh, in 5 B.C., and so the census took place probably in 4, and so the Lord was born then. And I think he was baptized in the year 26, uh, late September, early October, the start of the Feast of Tabernacles when he had been 30 years old, and then three and a half years later, in April of 30 A.D., would be crucified. And then probably about two years after that, Stephen would have been stoned, what you read in, in Acts chapter 7. And then a couple of years after that, perhaps in around the year 35, Paul had the Damascus Road experience. And so Paul uh, was a Christian for about 30 years, from 35, and he died perhaps in 65, 66. Uh, first 10 years, uh, you read of his experiences in Acts, and then uh, about the year 48, he went on his first missionary uh, journey. And then uh, Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem took, took place in the year uh, 51. And then after that, uh, he went again and he went to Lystra and Derby and he found Timothy. And so on his second missionary journey. So Timothy uh, was associated with Paul perhaps for about 12 or 13, 14 years. Paul was put in prison in the year uh, 60, he spent two years in prison between Caesarea, well, Caesarea, probably 59. He spent two years there, and then he was in, a prisoner in Rome. Then he got out, and nobody knows what he did. Uh, quite possible he went to Spain with the gospel. Some even feel he went to Great Britain uh, with the gospel in those years. In 64, he is back in prison. Nero was on the throne, and in 66, he was put to death, uh, beheaded in the year 66. So here is his last letter. He's in prison for the second time. During his first imprisonment, of course, he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And now he's in prison a second time, and he's writing to Timothy. So Timothy had spent uh, years with him, two missionary journeys. He'd, he'd done errands for Paul, going to various places. Now Timothy's in Ephesus. So Paul had spent two years in Ephesus. And now he's left Timothy there. And then, of course, the Apostle John uh, eventually resided in Ephesus as well. But here, uh, Timothy is in Ephesus. He's probably about 35 years old, and so he's not uh, a senior by any means, uh, but he has a responsibility. Uh, he, Paul writes in First Timothy about uh, elders uh, putting leadership in place, and so Timothy had a great responsibility. So in this letter, Paul is writing to, to really encourage him in the life he's to live and the ministry he has been given. And uh, as I put on the top of the, your sheet, it's a, a lasting legacy, living here with heaven in view. And that's what Paul is really stressing uh, through this little epistle, that there is a, a life that's worth living. It's not dictated by the world around us, but it's dictated by what the Lord has given us, what the Lord does for us. Uh, there is a sense in which chapter 1 deals with past issues. As Paul encourages Timothy from things of the past, chapter 2 
is the present. And chapter 3 has to do with the 3 and 4 with the future things that are uh, going to take place. Uh, there's a number of words repeated. Uh, the word hardship and the word persecution, both of them occur three times each uh, in this this epistle. And so it's an epistle for the last days. And he, Paul, is, is assuring Timothy that there are going to be difficult times. And uh, when the Bible talks about the last days, the last days uh, in terms of a period of time started with Pentecost and covers the whole period. But many of us would believe we're in the last days of the last days. That's the way the world uh, is going. And when you get to Second uh, Timothy 3, verse 1, when he talks about the last days, perilous times will come, he gives a description of what people would be like in the last days. And we see that so prevalent uh, today where we're, we're at. So when Paul found Timothy in, in Acts chapter 16 in Lystra and Derby, uh, he Timothy had a good reputation, it said. So even as a young man, he was obviously involved with a new group of believers there. And Paul took him along as a mentor to a younger man. And so he's pouring his life into Timothy, and it's obviously paid off. When Paul talks about Timothy in Philippians chapter 2, he says, I have no one like-minded who will naturally care for your affairs, for your state. Everybody else, he says, looks out for themselves. But you know what Timothy served like as a son with a father. And so he commends Timothy. And that's in the chapter where he's talked about the mind of Christ. And Timothy exhibited that mindset in the way he lived and the service he gave. And so a life of of influence. And it's interesting that that Paul, uh, though he's really involved, you know, we might say with church planting and so on for for probably only about 14 years. He had numerous people that he was involved with and interacted. I think in Romans 16, he mentions 28 different people uh, by name. Uh, Here, through these epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy mentions over 20 people by name. Now, some are mentioned in a negative sense. They did harm. They were against uh, but many others in a positive way, uh, accolades, uh, affirmation of a life that's well, uh, well lived uh, in the service of the Lord. And so uh, for me to live as Christ, and uh, Paul exhibited that and Timothy exhibited that as well. It wasn't just a plaque on the wall, it was how they lived uh, their life, how they served. And one of the things I think when we, we think of Paul writing really, in a sense, on his deathbed. He he didn't know what the future held. Uh, the year 64, like I say, he's got about 18 months to live when this is uh, written. And yet, he's he's concerned about people, and he's not quitting. He's not depressed or discouraged and poor me and woe is me. He's He, he wants to make sure the work goes on, and he's talking about people and, and encouraging uh, people. It reminds me that it's never too late to have an influence in the Lord's work. Uh, obviously, things happen in life and we can't do what we used to do. I mean, those things happen. Um, you just physically and, and in other ways, you can't do things. Uh, we can't relate sometimes to a different generation of, of, of people. But we can be an encourager. We can pray for. We can invest in. 
and it's never too late uh, to do that. Uh, Billy Graham, who's, I doubt if Billy Graham wrote any of his books, but his name is on them. Other people have written the chapters, but his, one of his books is called Nearing Home. Uh, it's a wonderful book about old age and about what we can do in serving uh, the Lord. Uh, Dr. Harlow's biography was No Time to Quit. And uh, he was still active at 93 years old, still uh, involved. Uh, and so uh, I think that's one of the messages of this book is that we can have an impact and an influence uh, on the lives of others, even if you can't interact. But now, of course, we have we have emails. We, we have so many other ways to uh, connect. But uh, we can make a life that's worth living. Now, Paul's in prison, and you think, well, what can what can a person in prison do? Well, he can obviously, as he says in Philippians, uh, people from Caesar's household were hearing the gospel because he was there in his first imprisonment. Uh, he wrote four epistles uh, from prison, and so God is not limited. Uh, in Acts sixteen, when they were shut up in prison, of course, uh, the Philippian jailer got saved as a result of that experience. So God is not limited at all. Uh, John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress from prison, uh, had it smuggled out and uh, wrote it without anybody knowing, uh, but again accomplished something wonderful. Uh, Judson in Burma spent years in prison and yet accomplished uh, great work. That was part of uh, his testimony, his legacy. And so it's a to me, it's a, an encouraging epistle in that sense that uh, here's a life worth worth living. And so in this chapter, and we're not going to read the whole chapter, I'm just going to pick out a few thoughts from chapter one, but uh, the two main thoughts are, he talks about examples, and he talks, then he gives some exhortation. So he presents people as examples of a life that's been well lived, and then he gives exhortation about certain things that should be true of us. But when we think about examples, there's some prerequisites, I think, that he, he mentions. He talks about the promise of life in verse 1 of chapter 1, which is in Christ Jesus. And if we're going to be an influence, and part of being an example is to live the life that, that matters, that counts. If you look back in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, uh, in verse 12, he says, lay hold on eternal life. He says that again at the end of verse 19, that they may lay hold of eternal life. That's to make that life real day by day in our life. Uh, John talked about the fact that he saw, they saw the Lord Jesus. They heard, they touched, they listened. And he says that was that eternal life that came from the Father. What the Lord Jesus exhibited was the life that God wants us to live that eternal life, to lay hold of it, to make it real in our lives. And so that's, that's really a prerequisite uh, for being a good example. So joy, peace, uh, faith, love, thanksgiving, those things need to be part of our makeup if we're going to be an example uh, to others. Uh, you know, it's been said, everybody's an example. You can be a good example or a bad example, but everybody's an example. And so we want to be a good example. And so this life he's given us gives us the opportunity to be a good uh, example. He also mentions a conscience in verse 3. 
And it's an interesting study. We don't have time to uh, to go through it all, but in Second Corinthians chapter one, Paul talks about his conscience. He'd told the Corinthians, "I'm going to come and visit you," but things happened, and they accused him of being, telling a falsehood. And he said, "No, I have a clear conscience on this." And our conscience is vitally important in terms of the Christian life. The Bible talks about a, a weak conscience and a seared conscience. Uh, our conscience uh, doesn't just automatically line up with God's word. We've got to spend time in God's word and say, well, what does God want? And we have to have conscience that's attuned to God's word. I, I liken the conscience to you know the white line or yellow line in the middle of the highway. It doesn't keep you on the right side, but it tells you when you're on the wrong side. You stay on the wrong side long enough, something will happen. Bad. But that line doesn't force you uh, to stay on one side or the other, but it lets you know where you should be. And so conscience is like that. It's a light that shines in. But if unless it's aligned to the Word of God, you know, I could make a thermometer that it only went between, say, 50 and 65, and the weather was always wonderful. You know, it's just cool regardless of what it really was. And so you have to have things calibrated. You know, time is, is set in England, that, uh, you know, so that we're all on the same wavelength, that thermometers are calibrated. Our conscience needs to be calibrated, and it has to be according to the Word of God. A weak conscience is actually somebody who sees something wrong with everything. In Romans 14, the weaker brother is the one who has issues with everything. Uh, legalism, we might say. You can't do this, you can't do that. That becomes a weak conscience. So we need a conscience that's that's clear and active if we're going to be an example uh, to others. So he mentions that in verse uh, 3. He mentions a pure conscience. But he also talks about serving. And so I thank God whom I serve. And uh, that's really a, a mental attitude, isn't it? To be a servant, the mind of Christ to want to be a servant. Uh, none of us naturally like the lower place or the second place, but to be a servant is so important. John 13, that's what the Lord Jesus exemplified. Uh, none of those disciples said, well, let me wash your feet. They came in, he washed their feet. He took the lower place. He became the servant. He didn't think it's something to be grasped after to retain that visible equality he had with the Father, but made himself of no reputation. Took upon himself the form of a servant. Uh, He could say, it's written of me in the volume book, I come to do your will, O God. Uh, And so even the Father would say, behold my servant, in Isaiah 42, uh, Isaiah 52 as well. Behold my servant, look at him, consider uh, him and so to be to have a servant's heart is is vital as well. It's not about me; it's about what I can do now for others. So there's patterns in here, and again, we're not going to read uh, the whole chapter, but let me just point out uh, some of those that were good examples. He mentions uh, in verse five. He mentions Lois and Eunice, so the grandmother and the mother, and he talks about their genuine faith. And so here's an example. These two women, uh, obviously uh, Eunice is married to an unsaved man. He's, he's a Greek, he's unsaved. But there is a genuine faith exhibited in their life. They live the reality of it. Genuine has a sense of sincere, of real, non-hypocritical. 
they, they demonstrated a life of faith in the way they lived. Now, obviously, as, as parents, we can't control the outcome, but we can control the input. As grandparents, you can't control the outcome, but you can control the input, what you are to them, the type of example. And so Paul could point to Eunice and Lois and say, look at them. Their, their faith was exemplary. It was genuine. Uh, you could look at their life and see that they, they had a faith in Christ that affected the way they lived. And Timothy saw that. They taught him the scriptures, we find out later on, that uh, from a child he knew uh, the scriptures. And so this was his home life. Even though he had an unsaved father, uh, he did have these examples uh, in, his, in his home life. Like I say, we can never determine the outcome. You know, some people look at Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and he'll never, when he's old, he will not depart from it. It's a promise. It's not a promise. It's a proverb. It's a proverbial. It's a truism. Uh, you give the direction, but it's not a promise that when they grow up, they're going to be a believer. And uh, it's a, from the best of homes, some kids have gone astray. And strangely enough, from the worst of homes, some kids have gone on uh, well. But uh, that doesn't remove the fact that a good example is so important uh, in the home. And so Lois and Eunice go down as a, a good example. If you look down at verse 15, here's, here's negative. This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. So these two men, uh, here they are listed, and for 2,000 years their names have been recorded here. They had a poor testimony. They turned away from Paul. They forsook. We don't know all that was involved, all that they uh, did. Uh, he mentions later on another man, Alexander. He said, did me much harm. And uh, so there are negative examples of people who didn't go on well. He talks in the first epistle about those who've made shipwreck of their, of their faith, uh, who are a poor example. And again, imagine having your name recorded, not just for your generation, but for eternity. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And so here it is, the eternal record, and their names are, are there. But in contrast, to that, you have this man, Onesiphorus, in verse 16 to the end of the, uh, the chapter. Uh, he, he went to Rome and he, he sought, Paul says in 17, when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. And so uh, he's a tremendous example. He also says at the end of uh, verse 18, very well how many ways he ministered, and the translators have added uh, the words to me uh, because they're in italics, they aren't in the text, how he ministered at Ephesus. And so that's his reputation. He sought out Paul regardless of the implications. He might have got in trouble for doing that. He might have ended up in prison, but he sought him out anyway. But he says, you know what he did at Ephesus, how he ministered. Uh, the word minister in the New Testament is just the word servant. A minister is a servant, one who serves. So is the word deacon, one who serves. Uh, the church likes titles, but nobody, nobody would serve as a deacon if the title was a servant. Can you imagine we're looking for servants. Just sounds better to look for deacons than it is to look for servants. But that was Onesimus' reputation. He was one 
one who served. And then, of course, Paul in this chapter uh, speaks of his um, commitment uh, to the gospel. Um, Verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. And so Paul, interestingly, several times he says he's a prisoner, not of Rome, but of Christ. Uh, He's there for the sake of Christ. But again, as you read through both epistles, just this heart, uh, this commitment to others and service. And then, of course, the supreme example is that of the Lord Jesus uh, Christ. He talks in verse 10 about the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look back at chapter 6, verse 13, 1 Timothy 6, 13, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. And so the supreme example, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul could say, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. When you see Christ in me, follow that example. So there's uh, some some examples that uh, are here again for all of eternity both positive and negative. But he also gives some exhortations. I'll just briefly touch on on these, but he talks about the spiritual gift. Verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now, I think the laying on of hands was just a public indication of the fact that Timothy had a gift. I don't think Paul imparted the gift. There's four passages in the New Testament that talk about spiritual gifts. Make it easy to remember Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. And so four passages. Uh, in, uh, in Ephesians 4, it's Christ who dispensed the gifts. In Romans 12, it's God who dispensed the gifts. And uh, so the Father. In uh, 1 Corinthians 12, it's the Holy Spirit who has dispensed uh, the gifts. But all of us have been gifted. And one of the sort of strange things or unique things about the Christian life is God gives, but we have to we have to do something with it. And so obviously if you're saved as a youngster and have the gift of teaching, it's going to take a long time uh, to show and develop. But we all have a gift. And I think when you look at the fact that God has made all of his creation unique, he doesn't duplicate things. I don't think any two people perhaps have the identical gifts. 28 Various gifts are mentioned in the New Testament. But we all have a gift. And I think as we go through life and we invest in a local assembly, a local church, that gift becomes evident, whether it's showing mercy, being an encourager, hospitality, whatever it might be. Now, many of the gifts are things that should be true of all of us. Hospitality is a gift, but it's something we're all encouraged to do. Evangelism says it's a gift, but we're all to do the work of an evangelist. And so uh, part of the, the, the thought in Ephesians 4 is these gifted men teach the church so that they can, can do the work for the Lord. And so we've all been given a, a, spiritual, a spiritual gift to serve the Lord with. Also, in verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. That's a wonderful verse. He's not given us the spirit of fear. There's lots in the world that if we focused on it, of course, uh, it could produce fear in us. 
Philippians 4, 6, we're to be anxious for nothing. Uh, the psalmist says, I will trust and not be afraid. I trust in the Lord and will not fear what man may do to me. And so as we uh, put our trust in the Lord, he has given us not a spirit of fear. That's not from him. But he's given us the power uh, to love and to have self-control. That power is given to us. And that's part of being an example uh, to others. And then he also through this, and again, we'd have to look at a number of phrases, but the thought of his stewardship, he's entrusted. So for Timothy, there's, uh, there's a gift. Uh, verse 14, that good thing that was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, in us. And so there's this thought of stewardship. And again, we are accountable or will be held accountable. Where there's privilege, there's responsibility. And so we've all been given a spiritual gift. Uh, we all have opportunities. We all have influences, uh, whatever we might have. Um, we're responsible for it. It really all belongs to the Lord. If you look back to chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, verse 17, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. And so, uh, part of that stewardship is what do we invest in? What matters in life? You know, Jim Elliot's phrase, he is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Uh, Luke 16, 9 talks about how we use our money. And he says, the Lord says, when our money fails, we'll have friends who will welcome us in heaven. Uh, as you've invested in the gospel and missions, whatever, there'll be people come up to you in heaven and say, I'm here because you gave. I'm here because of something you prayed, whatever. So we have a stewardship. We've been given privileges, and we have to answer for those privileges. And so the encouragement out of chapter 1 is that our, our life really does matter. We touch others. And we don't know the influence. It's been said, and I don't know who makes these statistics or how they found them, but the, the, the average person who becomes a believer has has had 10 significant contacts or influences in their life. So like I say, I don't know how you how somebody comes up with these statistics. But perhaps even in your life, you can think, how many people get saved the first time they ever hear the gospel? It's interaction. They see something, hear something on TV, they, they meet Christians. Uh, back in a previous millennium, I, I worked in a factory and uh, in the years I worked there, five guys got saved, but they all had outside influences, Christian wives or Sunday school in their background, or there was always something else uh, in their lives. And so you don't know if you're one of these. Uh, I mean, how many, how many people ever are there when somebody specifically and personally accepts Christ as Savior? But you'll get to heaven and find out that, well, you left a track. Uh, you said a kind word. Your testimony counted. And so our life does matter. And we should think in those terms. How am I, how am I touching the lives of others? Am I an encourager? Am I a good example in the life I live? So I trust that that just uh, encourage you as we uh, think of living here with heaven in view.
how we live is, is so uh, important. Let's uh, just close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we think of Paul's investment in the life of Timothy, of Titus, of Silas, and uh, Luke, and uh, so many that he interacted uh, with, and we benefit from that even today, uh, the results of his work and ministry. We thank you, Father, that we can live a life that counts, not just for time, but for eternity. And you've given us uh, gifts. You've given us a spirit of power and of love and a sound mind. Uh, You've given us opportunities. You've given us your word. And so, Father, we have the resources we need, and the responsibility lies on us to be a good example. So we pray that we might take this to heart and consider, as we interact with, with people, the fact that we represent the Lord Jesus Christ, and represent the gospel. Watch over us, we pray. We again commit to you these names on the list for prayer, and we just thank you that we can bring them before you, and that uh, you are a God who hears and answers prayer. So we give our thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.